perfection. Refuge of the Incompetent. I am Gaul and... I'm Ted. Oh no, what happened to Moses? No Moses. No Moses, he was eaten by zombies this week. (laughs) That's because our our show theme is pandemics. It's a film-heavy show this week, so be warm. Warned? Be warmed. Be be warmed and warned. We only read one book. We'll talk about it towards the end. Ted has some very strong opinions about it. So if you are a huge World War Z fan and think Max Brooks is untouchable, just listen for the first hour and a half of this show. <laughs> are you are you angling for like some angry fan mail from uh, Mel Brooks? I would love that. That'd be great. <laughs> I don't think anybody listens to the show, so <laughs> So yeah, that major spoilers of World War Z, although you guys probably know what happens in World War Z. We it's a 14-year-old book, so... Uh. Yeah. So let's kind of talk a little bit about music inspirations. I'll say this, there are a lot of songs about zombies out there, um, so there'll probably be some of those. I have a question for you, Ted. Have you seen or heard any good music made during the coronavirus? I've only seen trash. I've seen a lot of specifically quarantine or COVID music projects that all seem like total throwaways. The one yeah. counterexample I can think of is the newest Charlie XCX album, How I'm Feeling Now, recorded in isolation and she did zoom calls and stuff with her fans where she distributed demos and got feedback throughout the there, process what is and there's that alanis morissette album that came out fiona whatever. apple uh, oh, fiona oh, actually apple. i think there also was a new alana morissette album more recently but the fiona apple one was the one that everybody was talking about yeah that one wasn't bad yeah. that was pretty good I don't know that that one was, like, made after the lockdown started. I think she made, yeah, I think she made it in the spirit of a lockdown. (laughs) I think it was, like, all in her home. One thing I stumbled upon when I was looking for music was this article about the Black Death music parties. So maybe there'll be some classical music in this show. During the Black Death, people would walk around singing fun songs, big riotous parties, which you're kind of seeing now where people are having their parties where you're like, guys, don't do that. Apparently that was a big deal. And then there was a lot of music that came out of Europe after the Black Death that was this like departure from very religious music. So then they kind of went more secular. Definitely going to play something from the soundtrack to the Andromeda Strain. You're listening to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. If you'd like to listen to the full show with all the music kept in, please check out our website, lastrefugepod.com, for more information. Or search Last Refuge of the Incompetent on mixcloud.com. Enjoy the rest of the show! So, Plague Lit 
is hella human. That's my uh, opening line to <laughs> talking about this whole idea that writing about pandemics and viral plagues and illnesses is a very ingrained part of our nature. There's been this ancestral fear of humans towards infectious diseases for for many, 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 many years. You know, this idea that plague and pestilence frequented the ancient world and because there was no medicine to help, it continued to spread and the only way to avoid it was to avoid any contact with people. And there's kind of this supernatural origin of pandemics that's provoked by offenses against divinities. You see it in a lot of biblical plagues in the, probably in the Old Testament. I don't, Ted, do you know anything about the New Testament? (laughs) Most most of the plague stuff is in the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. In um, Homer's Iliad and Sophocles' Oedipus the King, there's this causal relationship between plague and sin in these Greek texts as well. Some older ancient writing talks about how plagues don't discriminate. So so this whole idea that um, if you're evil, the plague will come to you is kind of torn away or torn asunder by this Greek historian. Oh, God. How do you say that word? <laughs> Thucydides, I believe. Thucydides. Okay, great. That's probably not the original pronunciation. But... When he's writing about the history of the Peloponnesian War, he's talking about how the plague doesn't discriminate between good and evil, but but it brings about the loss of all social social conventions and a rise in selfishness and avarice. And I think when you talk about like contemporary fiction with regards to viruses, you really that's very clear. This whole idea that anybody can get this crazy zombie plague and the apocalypse that results always has some selfish, barbarous element. Just going forward from that is this human behavior on trial idea that you'll see in like more contemporary, well, not contemporary, that's the incorrect word, but uh, moving forward from the ancient Greeks, the Decameron and uh, Canterbury Tales, this fear of contagion increases vices. This whole idea of a society that already has avarice and greed and corruption leading to infection and thus to moral and physical death is is kind of connected to that. And then if you're going a little bit further on, we can talk a little bit about Mary Shelley. She wrote a book called The Last Man, which is kind of this really early apocalyptic example written in 1826 about a future world that has been ravaged by a plague. A few persons appear to be immune and avoid contact with others, which, you know, we'll talk a little bit about movies and a lot of these like plot lines are exactly what that book the last man is about they're all very much like "Uh oh plague happened and now these people have to figure out what to do yeah it's funny a lot of these narratives are sort of framed as they didn't see this coming and so society fell apart but they're all the same and have like all of these narratives are the same (laughs) and have been for over a century now so well no i mean (laughs) We did see it coming because we've been telling the story over and over again. Yeah, over and over again, man. It's in the Bible. There's a famous book written by Jack London. Jack London, an active member of the Socialist Party of America whose work is explicitly critical of capitalism and war. And he wrote a book called The Scarlet Plague, and it was written in 1912. 
It's set in a ravaged and wild America. The story takes place in 2073, 60 years after the spread of the Red Death, an uncontrollable epidemic that depopulated and nearly destroyed the world in 2013. One of the few survivors, James Howard Smith, alias Granzer, tells his incredulous and near-savage grandsons how the pandemic spread in the world and about the reactions of the people to contagion and death. There's a focus on the behavioral response to a pandemic. It talks about how fear, irrationality, selfishness come into play and that in the beginning, this is like early germ theory that he's writing about. So, so people in the beginning of this book, they appear not to be alarmed because they're sure that the bacteriologists would find a way to overcome this new germ just as they had overcome other germs in the past. But what happens is that all this medicine and scientific progress that they're trying to do is quickly defeated by the plague as like bacteriologists die, killed in their laboratories even as they study the germ of the scarlet dust as fast as they as fast as they perished, others stepped forth and took their places. Like the idea that everyone sort of trusted that the bacteriologists would find a cure and they didn't end up doing it kind of foresees uh, like antibiotic resistant germs in the middle of that without actually knowing that would happen. There's another connection this idea of people running away from cities in a, in a blind panic. My friends in New York now are like complaining about how the start of this pandemic, all these rich New Yorkers left to their second homes. And now they're back and they're like, it's a changed city. How annoying. Now they're back (laughs) and writing NYT opinion pieces about how New York is dead. Yeah, exactly. You know, he talks about selfishness. Civilization is crumbling and it was each man for himself. And crux of this was capitalism. What led to the rise in population, to this overcrowding and overcrowding then led to the plague and consequently capitalism is presented as the ultimate cause of the pandemic and he and you know criticizes it i don't think too incorrectly as the pandemic pandemic spreads the earth is simultaneously devastated by fires and i live in philly now but i am originally from california and you know my parents just took in friends from scotts valley that were evacuated from their homes and these are you know people in their 60s and 70s that are simultaneously fleeing a fire and <laughs> crossing their fingers they don't die of covid so it's definitely a uh, so we're talking about this connection between pandemics and capitalism And we're talking about some fiction that was written by Jack London in 1912, but there's some reality going on as well. We've talked about Mike Davis before in an article he wrote about uh, wildfires in California, uh, coincidentally. (laughs) And yeah, he he wrote a book in 2005, a while Mm. ago, called The Monster at a Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu. He, along with Rob Wallace, is another person who's written about sort of the political economy of novel infectious diseases. They tend to be the combination of intensive animal agriculture, pig feeding operations in China, for example, combined with habitat destruction, basically, as development pushes further into particularly forests. Bats or pangolins get more directly connected to the human environment that includes these agricultural industrial operations and that new strains of viruses and other diseases 
to combine, and then they get easily circulated through the same global trade networks that agriculture and uh, habitat destruction are connected to. Uh, well, and he mentions specifically uh, the film Contagion as being yeah. a uh, film that gets this right. At the very end of Contagion, after the disease has sort of been controlled, it goes back to the very moment when when the disease starts, and it's a bulldozer clearing some trees, which yep. makes a bat drop some <laughs> like a banana into a pig feeding lot, which goes to a casino. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it could have been. I don't know if Steven Soderbergh read Mike Davis's book, but it could have easily been. <laughs> yeah, in um in that one particular article that Mike Davis writes, the coronavirus cri- crisis is a monster field by capitalism. He talks about these three things that are like making it difficult for people to com for us to combat coronavirus, whether intentional or <laughs> or non intentional. This test kit shortage that we have that makes it so that we have no idea how or when or why. This virus spread. Yeah, Mike Davis is very critical of sort of the whole global health regime. Mm-hmm. Basically, he says, you know, the kind of international cooperation and public health and sanitation approaches that would be effective towards stopping pandemics has been grossly under-resourced. And instead, you get a lot of investment in private pharmaceutical companies developing new medicines and vaccines. He mentions that they're, they're not interested in research in antibiotics and antivirals because there's no money in it. That there could potentially be a universal vaccine for, for influenza or a vaccine that targets the immutable parts, this way he says, the immutable parts of the virus's surface proteins. And that's been a possibility for decades, but because it's not profitable, there's no priority for it, which is sickening. We were talking about Mike Davis, and he he mentioned he makes some other arguments that I thought were interesting. This whole idea that because this coronavirus mutates as it moves through different populations, it's really hard to effectively combat it. And then he also mentions, which is really important, that mortality rates increase not just in poorer countries but in poorer communities. And he does mention that you know, in these communities, there already are higher rates of other illnesses. That's been shown that if you are already, if you are already sick with something, you get the coronavirus, you're not going to be, it's harder for you to stay alive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some of his dire predictions about coronavirus eventually hitting sort of the global south very hard haven't quite come to pass yet. Although, I mean, Latin America right now is having some of the, the worst trouble with coronavirus. I believe Peru has the highest per capita mortality rate. Brazil. Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> Ted, and I, Ted and I met through Portuguese classes and studied in Brazil. Oh, that was what the, That's why the sigh was, listener. Yeah. Oh, Brazil. Well, Brazil. <laughs> Brazil was oh, arguably Brazil. a lot less messed up. <laughs> oh, Brazil. Um, yeah, Brazil was arguably a little less messed up back then than yeah. it is now. Yeah, now it's run by a rotting flesh wound. Yeah, he looks like... I believe it's been said by other people before that he um, Bolsonaro always looks like the guy in a zombie movie who's been yeah. bitten and is trying yeah. to hide it. Like, yeah, exactly. just what he looks like. <laughs> 
Uh, well, speaking of, uh, one of the things Mike Davis talks about is this kind of critique of, of the way that the left and the growing socialist movement in the United States is, is very stuck within the United States. It mirrors this nationalism, this trend towards nationalism that's just happening here. And he's saying that, like, if you really want to combat any of these growing crises, international solidarity is key. We can't just talk about the American working class and America's radical history, we have to talk about an international working class solidarity. Yeah, I mean, unless you're New Zealand and you're just in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> right. the borders don't really work. By the time you know that it's around, it's pretty much everywhere already. I wanted to mention, because Ted is in Seattle, and that's where the first big American, where the pandemic hit very strongly in the beginning, was, oh, at, a, yeah. um, was at a for-profit nursing home in Seattle, where the trend for for-profit nursing homes is really low wages, understaffing, and cost-cutting. We're letting our poor old people die. We're the best country in the world, Ted! Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, um, nursing homes or elderly homes in Sweden were also pretty much devastated. They also have like a nurse nursing understaffing problem. They also just had one guy who was in charge of their coronavirus response who didn't who was just wrong, and they kind of went with it. They trusted yeah. them for a while. And yeah, the el- elderly population in Sweden, particularly in elderly homes, was hit very hard. Um, a, lo- a lot of um, burning boat funerals in Sweden? Is that, <laughs> is that what they do? still, yeah. Still a tradition. Clouds into diesel taxis We drove Do you think zombies and pandemic stories are the same thing? Do they tell the same story now? I think um, conceptually, zombie fiction is a subgenre, like a subcategory of contagion. And I think they do have a lot of the same themes. Both of them are a lot about the, you know, the panic and response and the greed or corruption that leads to the problem in the first place. I think this is also the case with pandemic fiction more in general, but specifically with zombie movies, they're kind of simultaneously about an excess of sociality and Mm. a deficit of them. They're about this fear of society as like a multitude. You know, the zombie horde is basically just society abstracted from all of its like individuality and humanity. It's just this kind of fear of there being too many people. So that's the excess of sociality but it's also this fear of, you know, in crisis, society dissolving. The thing that makes them, like, not all sort of just dystopian or disaster movies is that I think there's also this fantasy of sociality contained within a lot of zombie fiction where it's about creating this little band of people that's, Mm -hmm. like, it's the right size to, like, make a new little society that will be good this time because it's facing this exterior threat. Plague comes or God comes and... What's the word? Floods out the world, and only the only this the few survivors go back and remake a world from there. You stop having to deal with society at large because conveniently they're no longer human. <laughs> this often has some pretty weird racial overtones. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you what do tell? I am not. I I have this thing where I only really watch zombie movies that aren't going to scare me. <laughs> I don't like scary movies or the movies that I like that are scary or horror 
are ones that aren't actually scary. Like The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man. That's a great movie. Not scary. The uh, the remake is terrifying, but that's just because you're wondering what's going on in Nick Cage's head. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I forgot he's in the remake. <laughs> he is so in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of broke down this pandemic section into a pandemic hits, scientists race to find the cure. And then the other side is pandemic hits, wipes out humanity. This is the new world. We got to learn how to live in it. So within that first category is contagion. Yeah. So, I mean, when coronavirus started, you know, I think contagion became the most like rented or sold movie on Amazon Prime or whatever. A lot of people were talking about, oh, it got so many things right. Right. I saw it around when it came out, and I remembered liking it, but when everyone was came talking... came out in 2011. 2011. When everyone started talking about it, I was like, it can't be like that spot on. And I finally rewatched it a couple days ago, and I was like, oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> it's a, First of all, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. All-star cast, Matt Damon, <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne, Jude Law. I remember uh, seeing that movie and being so deeply freaked out, because it, it's really well done. It feels yeah. very real. It's not like, you know, you watch Outbreak or 12 Monkeys and you're... Or not 12 Monkeys, sorry. <laughs> that one's not a real movie. I mean, it is a real movie. But Outbreak and you're like, okay, Outbreak. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I really like Steven Soderbergh as a director. Kind of the inheritor of the tradition of like a director like Sidney Lumet or maybe Jonathan Demme. Like 70s mm-hmm. and 80s guys who were just like really good at making movies. And like whenever Steven Soderbergh hasn't decided he's retired he can make like a movie a year he also does his own all his own editing under like, does he really yeah he's his own editor under a pseudonym i think you really see that in contagion and it's part of why it works so well as like a very like realist thriller because that's cool like it's a epidemiology procedural basically but it's so tautly edited that um... it's like an episode of house that's good <laughs> <laughs> Although I really like Hugh Laurie, so who am I to judge? A lot of the stuff that happens in Contagion does does end up feeling familiar from things that happened this year. We did not see quite as much like civic unrest or like breakdown as is featured in Contagion, but there's definitely plenty of panic buying. There's um, people trying to profiteer off of a, a fake cure that gets boosted by conspiracy theorists on the internet. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Are we recording this on 5G, Ted? Using 5G to record this? Um, I don't, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't matter. That's the whole point of the joke. <laughs> One thing that I was noticing when I was researching for this episode was a lot of these movies have some, or these writing have some element of civil unrest, but it's always born from this, like, society is degrading because of this plague. But the reality is, is the society is already degraded. I mean, that's, like, I think, what's happening. What we see with the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that we're seeing is because society was not working before this pandemic hit. People are putting their lives on their line in the midst of a pandemic to show the world it wasn't working and it's still not working. Uh, there's a there's a bit that where Lawrence Fishburne's character, who's like the head of the CDC, is on television. Like, <laughs> we're working on it, we're working on it. But for now, you know, the best the best approaches are social distancing. And yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, all Michael Crichton's works are basically about scientific hubris or theme park designer hubris. Both, <laughs> in the case of, well, yeah, no, that's it, both. They had yeah. to make those robots. Yeah, yeah, and Jurassic yeah. Park. That's both. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Well. I forgot about that. Not surprisingly, someone who kept writing about scientific hubris over and over again then became a big climate change denialist. No. Oh really? yeah, Michael. Yeah, Michael Crichton. Yeah, he became a big climate skeptic in one of his later books. Like someone who. Like a book critic who had criticized his work. He like basically inserted a guy who was designed to be recognizable as this critic and like made him like a small pedophile. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry. Back to the Andromeda Strain. Yeah, so the Andromeda Strain 1971 film, it sort of starts feeling very much like a 50s sci-fi movie because it's a bunch of like scientists and military guys no. talking very stiffly. There's these innovative shots window shots where there's like a panning shot that follows um, one of the characters and then like freeze frames of what they're seeing and there's a lot of cool like like early 60s and 70s like you not know, they're computer graphics or like video graphics that oh, cool. were made in a computer but are supposed to look like this is our computer a space probe crashes in new mexico and oh, brings yeah, okay. uh, this virus that destroys Kills everyone in this little town. The scientist who's been prepared for this takes his team, the two survivors, to this underground disease study center. It's been <laughs> 70s sci-fi corridors and stuff. And this absurdly complicated disinfection process. Um, <laughs> they go through different like washes as they go down these five levels. And each time they have to burn their color-coded clothes. Um, one guy is given a key that's rigged with a nuclear device that will blow up the entire thing if there's an an outbreak. It turns out that this organism from space has it's evolved to live in space but directly turning energy into matter. Mm-hmm. So the nuclear weapon will actually make it grow out of control mm-hmm. and mutate. So as with the the Japanese movie Virus also has kind of this overlap between contagion and Mutually assured destruction. <laughs> no, in Andromeda Strain, you don't actually see as much of the the effect of a pandemic on society. <laughs> You're really just in this underground Nevada base with these scientists doing sciencey stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the other side of this pandemic film world where humanity has been wiped out and there are a few survivors. You mentioned Virus earlier, Day of Resurrection, a 1980 film from Japan. It's based on a novel that um, won some Japanese science fiction award when it came out. So basically everyone gets wiped out by this virus that was created by accidentally by an American viral researcher. So Antarctic research stations and these two submarines are the 800 human survivors. Then they discover that right before he died, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff activated the American nuclear system that's set to blow everyone up if Washington is um, bombed. Devastated. Yeah, they suspect this virus is actually a Soviet creation. Mm. Because it's a Japanese movie, the hero is a seismologist who (laughs) discovers that um, there's going to be a big earthquake under Washington, D.C. that will make the weapon system think that Washington, D.C. has been hit by nuclear weapons and will then attack 
the Soviet Union, which will set off the Soviet Union's nuclear response system. And a convenient all- plot point. <laughs> and the Soviet Union thought that uh, the U.S. Antarctic Research Station was possibly a secret like military station, so they have nuclear weapons targeting Antarctica. So basically the last 860 people will die unless they get to Washington, D.C. to... Um. Um, to uh, stop the automated system, which they don't. <laughs> they don't? So humanity is destroyed? The survivors on, on Antarctica manage to go to like Patagonia. Then the, the Japanese survivor walks all the way to Patagonia from Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> There's always a little bit of hope, I guess. Mm. So yeah, it's, a, it's definitely different than a lot of pandemic movies because you just get... Like, yep, everyone's dead yeah. early on. And then you get, well, maybe not everyone is dead. And then you get this sort of crossover with... Uh, I wonder if that's like a Japanese... I mean, we'll talk about more about this next week, but I'm wondering if that's a, a theme in Japanese speculative fiction, this whole, eh, maybe it's okay, <laughs> maybe it's not, I don't know. I mean, One of the books we're going to talk about is The Memory Police next week, and it's... Pretty bleak. I, I mean, as the only country to have nuclear weapons dropped on it, you know, it thinks about nuclear warfare a lot as a culture. Yeah. Thank um, you, so Ted. I forgot about that. <laughs> you know what we did? Both both the virus part and the nuclear part become really about the hubris or dangerousness of a military mindset among states. Whereas other works like World War Z really become about how these kind of state response. They remade the Omega Man uh, with the original title. I Am Legend. I Am Legend. Yeah. The Omega Man is much more fun. Very Um, different. (laughs) Very different. First of all, it's first part of the film is just Charlton Heston watching. So you're watching Charlton Heston watch a documentary about Woodstock. <laughs> he only does that for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie are him just driving around Los Angeles, talking to himself, uh, yeah. talking to mannequins, playing chess with his bust of Caesar. Yeah, so he's the lone survivor, Dr. Robert Neville of a plague that's wiped out most of the human race. Inexplicably, some of the, not survivors, people that are infected by it, don't die right away. They turn into these, like, savage Luddite death cults. <laughs> yeah, and they yeah. this cult that sort of blames... blames science. this Yeah, blames science and technology in general. Yeah. Um, so they become, like, book burners. And they, yeah, they, they, like, destroy museums. And... They destroy museums. They shun technology except for, like, catapults so they can throw flaming <laughs> stones at Charlton Heston's apartment. Yeah, um, but and when I was watching this movie the whole time, we were Brendan and I were like, "Why is it so hard for them to burn a building? It's not, it's not that hard to start a fire." Yeah, John is just hanging out with his art collection and like his scotches, eating hot dogs and canned beans. I did realize though when I was watching it, I had this realization where I was like, if I was the last person on Earth, I wouldn't kill myself. I would probably turn into Charlton Heston's character. (laughs) I I would just be that person. We'll have perfect opportunity to embrace all of your quirks with (laughs) no social judgment except the uh, vampire hippie 
Pandemic. Victims who want to kill you. It's a little different from some of the other pandemic movies because in those you have you have the pandemic and the social collapse, but in this one they're sort of combined. Pandemic victims are the one who shun society as as it is. And in that way it's sort of halfway in between like the zombie movies and the pandemic movies. Because they're not they're not zombies, like they're still Mm-hmm. rational people. Oh, you get to see shirtless Charlton Heston. <laughs> you Work get a lot of that. A lot of shirtless Charlton Heston. And the sun hangs close by the water's sleep. And the sun hangs close The idea that like, the mass of people out there is suddenly just completely uh, implacably hostile is very similar to the prepper fantasy that the cities are going to collapse and then the urban minorities are going to come and try to take all of your stuff. Not that I think like the zombie movies are all racist propaganda. <laughs> and in the earlier, in like in the earlier, like Night of the Living Dead, which kind of starts the tradition of zombie movies, you know, it's very much about race relations in the U.S. Mm. The group of survivors falls apart and is unable to resent to mm. defend themselves against the zombies because of racism in the group against the black survivor. Sort of the later movies, the zombies start to get like kind of complicated. They start to have maybe reasoning and cohesion. And the survivors are Dennis Hopper in mm. uh, the Land of the Dead. Just this awful rich guy who lives in a tower in Pittsburgh and eventually gets his comeuppance from this kind of multi-ethnic zombie zombie coalition um, <laughs> after night of living dead when zombie fiction just becomes kind of this thing that's churned out a lot you get more works where it's just we get to kill the faceless mass now um, <laughs> nothing complicated about that i don't know what the very first piece of zombie fiction is i mean the idea originally comes from like voodoo from haiti a voodoo zombie isn't that's not contagious it's not like no and it's not that spreads it doesn't want to eat you either. Yeah. According to this book called The Undead 18th Century by Linda Truce, zombies appeared in literature as far back as 1697 and were described as spirits or ghosts, not cannibalistic fiends. They arrived on the film scene around the same time as their monster peers, Frankenstein and Dracula, with the 1932 release of White Zombie. But it wasn't until 1968, with Night of the Living Dead, did this whole mythos of zombies really come about yeah that's where you start to get the lumbering undead thing that's just coming to eat you and where it starts to become this infection spreads from person to person which is eventually how you get works like world war z where you get hundreds of millions of people who get infected so now the living dead creates this modern 20th century zombie archetype the first three films uh, in that trilogy, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead are all kind of social critiques. Dawn of the Dead is famous for being set in this mall that the zombies, they seem to like do what they remember doing in life. And they're just <laughs> shuffling around a mall, like, um, batting at commodities. So The Dead Don't Die is a Jim Jarmusch film from 2019. You're saying that that's kind of that's I, I'd recommend that's that's fun movies Jim Jarmusch, um, <laughs> Bill Murray. You were saying that it's kind of like a um, kind of a comment on climate change as well. Jim Jarmusch has definitely talked about it. Like in interviews, he says, you know, this is basically about climate change. Hmm. The zombieism in The Dead Don't Die is like you hear background radio announcements 
explaining it as you often do in films like these. The explanation for why the zombieism starts is a polar fracking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow puts the, the magnetic pole off balance in some way. And like in that movie, everybody kind of knows from early on, everybody kind of knows that it's the zombies. They're still kind of like non-plus go about their lives and kind of know they're going to be eaten, and they're kind of resigned to it, which is sort of how we respond to climate change. We don't deny it outright, are somewhat aware that all of this is coming and changing, but yeah, we kind of have this fatalistic approach to it. Do you want to say anything about The Girl with the Gifts, with all the gifts? 2016 film, it sort of tweaks the zombie formula by the main character is this little girl who's been who's born with this fungal infection that makes people zombies and the children basically you know they act like people they're as rational as we are but they also hunger for flesh (laughs) Um, uh, so yeah in this one the characters have to deal with the with like zombies as people it's not this total negation of humanity it's like a radical transformation of humanity yeah girl with all the gifts when one of the last people is dying he says something it's all over now and the zombie girl says like it's not over it's just not yours anymore let's talk about world war z people we know that's why you came here see us bag on a no i'm not gonna bag on it there's some stuff that's really good about the book and some things that aren't that great about you gave it. it five stars and good reads so. oh did i <laughs> i usually unless a book unless i like fall asleep and cannot finish it, we'll give a book four or five stars. If I can finish the book, I'll give it five stars. Ted judging me on my Goodreads <laughs> likes. Should have started a book pod, uh, radio show with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you this about World War Z. I would not not recommend it. I think it's a fun book. So it's written by Max Brooks, son of Mel. Probably know him as the producer of the film Solar Babies. Well, you know, Mel... Yeah, he's most widely known as the producer of solar things uh world war z an oral history of the zombie war that cover synopsis the zombie war came unthinkably close to eradicating humanity max brooks driven by the urgency of preserving the acid etched first-hand experiences of the survivors from those apocalyptic years traveled across the united states of america and throughout the world from decimated cities that once teemed with upwards of 30 million souls to the most remote and inhospitable areas of the planet. He recorded the testimony of men, women, and sometimes children who came face to face with the living, or at least the undead. World War Z is the result. Never before have we had access to a document that so powerfully conveys the depth of fear and horror, and also the ineradicable spirit of resistance that gripped human society throughout the plague years. It's kind of like Robo-Apocalypse in that it's written as this, like, collection of people's memories from this war, right? Yeah, reading this for the first time after having read Rogue Apocalypse definitely made me realize um, how much, like, that book is indebted to this one in its style. I mean, they both have the same sort of problem of having a lot of characters with not that much depth. Um, Yes. Kind of stereotypes (laughs) who just push forward the narrative. And maybe this one has even more of a problem with that because it has more of those characters. Oh, Ted, I would like to say that I've also given Kathy Griffin's autobiography a five-star review on on Goodreads. (laughs) 
So my my rating levels are not to be trusted. You putting that on the air? I'll put it on the air. I don't care. I'm not offended by. Well, I'm not a snob. He also says Max Brooks is one of his um, main inspirations for this format, where it's just a collection of interviews with people who experienced it. Is Studs Terkel? Um, mm. He's a long time like. Chicago radio personality, and um, mm-hmm. and then another book said that his like writing model is Tom Clancy. This book really is just Stud Sturkle meets Tom Clancy, which is <laughs> weird to think about, but that's yeah, it exists in the form of this book. I'll tell you this: I didn't dislike it, <laughs> but now that I've read some stuff about him, and now that there is an actual pandemic, I'm like, hey man, you might have gotten a few things wrong. It is. A very, very 2006 book. Yeah, to me, it's very much an early global war on terror book. He says it's sort of directly inspired based on the first outbreak of SARS. The zombies are just sort of a metaphor for for infection. But the thing Mm -hmm. is, you don't have to shoot a virus in the head with, like, an army. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to murder them. Yeah. I mean, it... It's called World War Z, and it's about war. And it's very much a book where states and militaries are the central actors. Very much a book written from a, a state viewpoint. I mean, he doesn't seem to be, like, actively, you know, like a rah-rah, jingoist kind of guy. No. Um, but no, he but he's act- got that liberal love of, of the yeah. military. Yeah. Like, World War Z feels like it was written to impress his favorite international relations professor. I mean, Max Brooks, after World War Z was written, got invited to, like, lecture at... West Point. Yeah, in the Naval War College. The Modern Um, War Institute. Uh, So he obviously very successfully got into that mindset. This is the kind of thinking those people like. They, like, invite him as an outsider who's, like, someone who can, like, see the things they're not prepared for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this book, you know, the U.S. doesn't do everything right. They get a lot of things wrong. There are examples of things that they get wrong the first time that they don't see. They bring the wrong solution to the problem. They don't foresee things right. And probably, like, military strategic thinkers and relations people saw that and were like, oh, yeah, that's... These are the things we don't see, but I think these are all the things that, like, they already see that they don't see. The sorts of problems and solutions that military strategists, international relations people actually don't see yet are not the things they're going to recognize as the things they're not seeing. Yes. So ultimately, I think they like Max Brooks so much because he's like, it's comforting to think that the only these are the things they're not ready for. This happened years ago, but the U.S. would run red versus blue games, mm-hmm. um, gaming out a war with Iran. And basically the, the, the red team, which is the Americans who are tasked with um, playing as Iran, they just like use a bunch of boat, little boats with explosives and sink the Little boat? Yeah. <laughs> You can play a Lil Yachty song. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. Lil Yachty Well, yeah, they just sink the U.S. fleet easily, and they win the win the game. So basically, they just play the game over again and say, "You can't do that this time." Even if there's a part of the military establishment that doesn't want to think about threats like that, they do know those threats are there, and that those are the kinds of threats that I think Max Brooks thinks about in this that makes them invite him to the Naval War College. 
One of the things that he gets so very wrong in this book is that Israel is one of the few nations to combat this zombie war well because they're like have this singular singular military mindset and i'll tell you this much about the coronavirus response in israel but they are not doing well (laughs) he kind i will give him give max works this he kind of predicts a trump-like president taking over yeah and he has like a a weaselly little um <laughs> uh, like ex chief of staff guy who's literally shoveling dung, uh, whose name is um, Grover Carlson. <laughs> in a book written in 2006, that's I think that's pretty obviously a dig at little bow tie wearing Tucker Carlson, who yeah. we're still stuck with. This is one of the most business friendly administrations in American history. His staff didn't even bother to read our cost assessment, for, assessment report. I think they were already looking for a magic bullet. They railroaded it through the FDA in two months. Remember the speech the president made before Congress, how it had been tested in Europe for some time, and the only thing holding up, holding it up was our own, quote, bloated bureaucracy? Hmm. Remember the thing, the whole thing about people don't need big government, they need big protection, and they need right. it big time? Right. He somehow managed to uh, predict Trump's <laughs> weird uh, <laughs> preoccupation with saying big time. So, uh, he did get some things perfectly right. But somehow it manages to consistently sort of rehabilitate U.S. allies. So you have Israel, who responds well, but is also, like, manages to, like, resolve its ongoing conflict by... Yeah, which is mind-blowing, because they currently currently have a pandemic in that country, and they are not rehabilitating whatever (laughs) crises are existing you have south africa it's the first country to come up with like a hard-nosed realist plan um which is developed by like a former apartheid strategist who is then sort of redeemed by being hugged by nelson mandela who says that they're gonna go ahead with the plan (laughs) cuba because it's an island nation and it's close to the u.s it originally is in a better position than the U.S., so it has a bunch of American refugees who come there and turn it into a capitalist democracy, a thriving capitalist democracy. So Cuba like saves the U.S. and then becomes American, Americafied, and you know everybody's happy. Whereas Russia becomes an awful hellscape that then becomes an Orthodox theocracy. There's a chapter about North Korea where they just speculated about whether everyone's living underground. Oh, another another ally that gets redeemed is um, you have this West German uh, soldier character who complains about... He talks about how the West German troops are all, like, instilled with this idea that they can't be like the Nazis and they can't just follow orders, whereas the East German troops will just do anything. You know, because they East Germany told them that they were victims too, so they didn't have this sense of guilt, so the West German soldiers are more, like, ethical. Whereas the West German state and military were full of ex-Nazis. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, he also decides to write in this weird phenomenon where there's people who, um, they can't psychologically deal with it, so they, be- they become entirely convinced that they are themselves zombies, mm-hmm. and they can, like, go through almost any anything that zombies can or the character who was narrating it compares it to stockholm syndrome 
And Stockholm Syndrome isn't real. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's not real. (laughs) Yeah. It was invented by a psychologist who was the negotiator for that particular Mm -hmm. hostage situation. Who yeah. didn't like being criticized by one of the women who was held yeah. hostage? Yeah. Was like, well, this woman is crazy. <laughs> uh, oh, and you have mini chapter about England. This guy with an Arthurian, this guy with a sword, talking about how the queen decided to stay because the royal family, you know, keeps the nation together and has to. The highest of distinction is service to others. I don't even remember that. And that would absolutely not happen. (laughs) They would be whisked away to Austria or whatever. Back Uh, to their homeland. Yeah, I think much (laughs) of the royal family goes to Ireland in this. But the queen has to stay at Windsor. Yeah, because all of England decides to fortify on their castles. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because everyone kind of... Everyone's got a castle, right? (laughs) Yeah. And everyone in this book kind of just cues to whatever their national stereotype is. The Japanese characters are an otaku who becomes the um, Padawan of a blind swordsman uh-huh. who like lives in life his life in shame because he was blinded by the Hiroshima bombing. When you write a book in these like brief vignettes and each of them are representing what happened in a particular country, you're gonna run into this problem but yeah um you don't really get any one who goes interestingly against type i would say you kind of have the same theme of a disease starting in china because of sort of habitat destruction disease comes from it's like in the silts of the in the land drowned by the three gorges dam but it appears less less like an actual disease like sars and more like ancient curse or something. <laughs> and the sun hangs close by the water's And the sun hangs close He says this thing when he's being interviewed where he gets so close to what I would think is a profound statement but fails <laughs> miserably. He says, I don't want to blame everything on Trump. America has the most incompetent, disastrous, dangerous captain that we've ever had but the ship has had mechanical problems for some time he launches into an engrossing monologue about how trust in the government has collapsed after it was attacked first by the left in the (laughs) 1960s then by the right in the 80s eroding public trust to do a disastrous effect and i'm like oh you get so close to you're right it's not just trump it's it's a disease but i don't know man i don't know if one of the characters in the book the institutional u.s um retreats behind the Rocky Mountains, so it's sort of centered mm-hmm. in Denver. But the character who ends up sort of running the the wartime US economy is this ex hedge fund trader whose father was a New Dealer and he's kind of inspired by the New Deal and the World <laughs> War Two war economy. Yeah, to create something that will can feed everyone and create lots of weapons to kill mil- hundreds of millions of zombies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the ideal that Max Brooks has in mind of um, efficient but not overly ideological national government that's united against external threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a, a pre-60s vision. So you have this ex-hedge fund dealer running a New Deal-esque wartime economy, but then near the end of the book where it's starting to talk more about life after they've mostly won the war against zombies. It goes back to this, this hedge fund character who now 
like works for the treasury or something. And he says, every day we get a few more registered accounts with American banks, a few more private businesses opening up, a few more points on the Dow. <laughs> After most of the global population has become a zombie and died, you're Why telling me that? there's still a New York Stock Exchange? Yeah. <laughs> um, which kind of kind of have to come back to that quote that gets banded around a lot and attributed to various people that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. One of the sort of military thinkers in the books is describing the zombies and why they're so hard to fight. They would fight until the very end because unlike us, every single one of them, every second of every day was devoted to consuming all life on earth. Sounds like capital to me. <laughs> um, He's got one more quote that I, it's not from the book, it's from an interview, where he says, the best way to educate is to entertain. And I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think that future boring people are boring. And I, and I don't disagree with the fact that, you know, fiction and even fiction that's kind of fluffy can be entertaining and educational. Then he goes on to say, in the Second World War, the U.S. government got Hollywood on board to break down complicated strategic ideas into very simple stories. And America used it to be the best at that. But somewhere along, we gave up. Uh, dude, you talk about propaganda? We've still been doing <laughs> propaganda. <laughs> Literally, the CIA went from being bumbling buffoons to the most wonderful thing in the world. We still do it, but the U.S. government's still getting Hollywood on board. <laughs> every, yeah, every $100 million blockbuster with the military is able to be made because the military lends you all that equipment. Yeah. And yeah, there is a character earlier in the book who's a Hollywood director who decides to start making, like, cinema verite documentaries about the mm. war effort. They're so inspiring that they single-handedly stop the, the rash of suicides that's been going <laughs> to um, become a huge problem. Hollywood kid. I like his dad. His dad made solo babies. Yes. <laughs> I will not say I will not say a single bad word about the producer of solo babies. No, no. And the sun hangs close by the water sweet. And the sun is close by. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between, and all you zombie folk out there. Oh, all you fungal zombie fusion folk. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this is a plea. This is a a plea from from Gaul because Gaul does all of the social media for the show, and so if you listen and you're not our friends or our family, I would genuinely like to hear from you, just out of curiosity. Who are you? We <laughs> <laughs> need a survey. I need a survey. Say hi. Tell us what you like about our show. What you dislike if you, for some reason, are a hate watcher. Watcher. Listen, <laughs> drop us a line. We're going to talk about Japan next week. We have a special guest. You can prep for this special guest if you have Instagram by following Read Books, Serve Looks. It's my friend, Tom, and he's an artist and he does, he's got a cool bookstagram. Yeah, so if you want to let us know that you actually listen to the show, you email us at thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail.com. Do you want, do you want to drop any of our social media accounts? I mean, it's just Last Refuge Pod, I think. Yeah. You, you can follow us on social media. Or go to our website, lastrefugepod.com. There is original art for every single episode that is pretty cool that my husband makes. So if you're into science fiction art, hashtag sci-fi art, <laughs> check 
it out. Leave us leave us a voicemail if you're more into uh, that. <laughs> Audit the auditory medium. The auditory medium eight zero five two five three three zero nine one eight zero five two five three three zero nine one. And there's no Moses here to wish you sweet dreams. So Ted, do you want to take it away? Do you want to <laughs> get out of here and competeers? <laughs> sweet dreams and competeers. Science fiction.